Hello lovelies and welcome back to Listen Closely. My name is Bobby, your host, and thank you for tuning in yet again for this podcast series. I am so grateful to have so many dedicated listeners and y'all just don't understand how much it really means to me. Please remember that you can leave me five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. I don't believe anything else allows you to review it or leave stars, but definitely Apple. So if you're listening on Apple, please leave me those stars. Let me know how I'm doing. You know, message me on Facebook and let me know if you're liking it, what I can change. I am always up for anything. Or if you just want me to look into a certain subject, definitely hit me up and let me know. You can look me up on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok at HTT listen closely. You can also email me HTT listen closely at gmail.com. I try to make it as easy as possible. And then I'm also on YouTube. You can find all of my series and seasons on YouTube as well as bonus videos that I've made. And I'm trying to add a little bit more into my YouTube because that one's still the newest of all of my platforms. So I'm trying to add more into that one. So please bear with me, but we are going to build it up. So for this week's episode, we're actually going to be breaking it down into two different episodes. It is just so much information, so many theories. A movie was made of it that it just, it needs to be broken down into two episodes. So that way I get it fully covered and give the victims the, you know, amount of coverage that they need. And if you've checked my Facebook and Instagram, you already know, but we are going to be talking about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Moonlight Murders are the inspiration to the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. I haven't seen it as of this episode, but I will be watching it because I will be talking about it more in the second half of this episode, so in part two of this. Before we actually get into the crimes, I real quickly just wanted to lay out some of the backstory because I feel like to understand these crimes, you have to understand what was happening during that time. So Texarkana is unlike any other city that I know of. In fact, I think it's the only one. I'm not too sure on that, so don't quote me. But Texarkana is both a Texas and an Arkansas city. So there's two different states in there and they are divided by a road literally called the State Line Road. And it got its name because if you break it down, Texarkana. So Tex for Texas, Ark for Arkansas, and then the Anna is actually for Louisiana because Louisiana is not that far away from it. So it was a great place for, you know, getting in and out of all those states. And in the 1940s, uh, Texarkana had lots of promise of jobs leading to men flocking there due to the National Railroad expansion. So Texarkana basically grew up as a railroad town, and this is not the first time that we've covered railroad towns. If you look back at Olive and Bragg and all the different ones in the past that we've talked about, there kind of seems to be a pattern here of railroad towns means, you know, jobs. And so people would flock there and, you know, settle down and try to make the most of it. Unfortunately, that also meant that, you know, there was some gambling houses, bar rooms and brothels as well, because all these men have now flocked for the jobs and they need something to do. There were also lots of reports of gangsters in this area 
because they could move between the jurisdictions. So like I said, they were close to Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana, so they can weave in and out of the jurisdictions very easily. So there became a, a lore of lawlessness in Texarkana. So with all these different, you know, gangsters and criminals, crime, while it was a big thing, certain crimes were kind of like, you know, oh, it's just an everyday thing kind of thing. So, you know, how in newspapers they'll be covering, say, a car crash that happens at a location that is fairly known for car crashes. So you basically start to become numb to that. Like, it's something that you have to deal with every day. So that's kind of how it was with this, you know. So if somebody, say, for example, got pickpocketed, well, it wasn't looked at as much because, I mean, there's just, it happens on the daily almost. So that kind of explains a little bit, and it's going to play a part into the actual first crimes that happen. I do want to make mention that this is an unsolved case. So all these victims have still not seen their justice. And while there are theories as to who the actual person responsible is, there have been no charges brought to any one suspect. But okay, let's get into this. The first half of this Moonlight Murders series is going to be talking about strictly the crimes that occurred. So the crimes that occurred happened between February 22nd of 1946 until May 3rd of the same year. There were a total of four different crimes that occurred with five being killed and three being wounded during these crimes. Okay, so let's jump into February 22nd, 1946. The very first attacks. At around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, aged 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, aged 19, parked on a secluded road known as a Lover's Lane after having seen a movie together. About 10 minutes later, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door and shown a flashlight in the window. And unsure if this is a prank, Hollis told him he had the wrong person, to which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do what I say. Which, at this point, the perpetrator asked both Hollis and Larry to step out of the driver's side door, and the man ordered Hollis to take off his pants. Now, for me, that is kind of a weird spot. I mean, why would somebody ask you to take off your pants? The only thing that I can think of was he was trying to make sure that there was no gun in his, you know, person, and that he could then check the pockets for money and, you know, good possessions to steal. So after Jimmy complied, the man struck him in the head twice with the pistol. A Mary later told the investigators that the noise was so loud that she initially thought that Jimmy had been shot when it had actually just been his skull fracturing. So you can imagine how hard those hits had to have been. And of course, thinking that the man was simply there to rob them, Mary showed him, you know, Jimmy's wallet and said, look, we don't have any money. There's no reason to, you know, hurt us, things like that. And after which she showed him the wallet, she was struck with a blunt object. The assailant told her to stand and then told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee towards a ditch, but the attacker ordered her to run a different direction up the road. 
The attacker, of course, caught up to her and began to knock her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. So this was clearly a very sick individual. And of course, during this time, she just, you know, you lose your sense of self while this is happening. So she, at that point, was even asking the assailant to just go ahead and kill her. But after the assault, she was able to get on foot and she ran half a mile to a nearby house where she attempted to call for a passing car to stop, but she was ignored. Luckily, she was able to awaken some of the residents at the house that was nearby and phone the police. So at this point, you're thinking about Jimmy because Jimmy was just hit twice on the head with the end of the gun and, you know, had his skull fractured. So you're thinking, whatever happened to Jimmy? Well, somehow, Jimmy had regained consciousness and managed to flag down a passing vehicle. The motorist left him at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where he was also able to call the cops. So within 30 minutes, the sheriff and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already gone. They found Jimmy's pants 100 yards away from the parked car, so where the attacks actually happened. Jimmy was then hospitalized for several days because of his skull fracture, while Mary was only hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound And then, you know, they just wanted to check her out with being assaulted. Both did survive. And that is the great news about this one, is they both survived. And you're thinking this would make, you know, huge headlines and would kind of put people on alert. But nothing happened. This is actually, like, it was covered in the newspapers, but nobody really blinked an eye on it. So this is what I was talking about when I said that, you know, things happen and people just kind of... When it still went about their day, like they didn't stop doing their normal activities because of this first uh, crime that occurred. They were just like, okay, you know, people got assaulted and injured, but it's just another Tuesday. I mean, particularly at this point, because like I said, there was a lot of lawlessness at that time or so it goes. So then nobody gave it a second thought. And it wasn't until the second crime occurred, which would be the first double murder that people started to kind of take a second look at all of this and think, okay, maybe there actually is something going on here. So on March 24th, 1946, Richard Griffin, 29, and Polly Moore, 17, were found dead in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile between around 8.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. by a passing motorist. The motorist passed by this parked car on one of the lover's lanes named Rich Road and honestly thought that they were asleep. They were, in his mind, just sleeping off a good night. It wasn't until he got closer to the vehicle that he found Griffin between the front seats on his knees. So if you're thinking about, you know, cars today, it'd be on your armrest is where he was found on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out, while Polly was found sprawled face down in the back seat. There is evidence, however, that suggests that she was possibly killed outside of the vehicle. Uh, There was a blanket outside of the car, so they believe that she was killed on that blanket and then placed inside the car. Richard had been shot twice while still in the car, and then both had been shot 
once in the back of the head, and they were both fully clothed. A 32 caliber cartridge shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol wrapped in a blanket. So that is, you know, one of the leads that they had for this particular crime that occurred. But there is no reports that Richard or Polly was ever examined by a pathologist. Now, there were reports that there was a sexual assault that had occurred with this one, but the modern reports do refute this claim. And in response to the murders, police launched a statewide investigation along with the Texas and Arkansas City Police. So again, like I said, this is a city divided by two different states, so they did include both states in this investigation. And by March 27th, local police had interviewed around 50 to 60 witnesses, including patrons and employees of Club Dallas, which is a local bar that was near the crime scene. And by March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain any information on the Griffin and Moore case that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. However, the rewards yielded no fruitful clues or suspects, instead producing over a hundred false leads. So anybody was just trying to get any kind of leads in to get that money. But unfortunately, none of them seemed to pan out. And again, this is when it's starting to pick up, you know, two different couples have been attacked. One survived but were brutally injured and the other two were killed in this attack. So and they're starting to see a little trend here because both of them happened on a lover's lane and both were couples. So again it's at this point that you're starting to see people kind of stir at you know hey what's what's going on here and that leads us to the April 13th 1946 double murder. So this will be the second double murder. So, so far, four people have been attacked up until April 13th, where two more were attacked. On the evening of Saturday, April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, aged 15, was playing her alto saxophone in her regular weekly gig with her band at the VFW Club around 1.30 a.m. Sunday morning, April 14th. Her friend, Paul Martin, who is age 17, arrived to pick her up from the performance. And this was actually the last time that both of them were seen alive was when he came to pick her up. Paul's body was found at around 6.30 a.m. that morning by Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their son lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Uh, Blood was found further down the road on the other side by a fence. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand, and finally through the back of the neck, which would most likely be the kill shot. Betty Joe's body was not found until approximately 11.30 a.m. So again, he was found at about 6.30 a.m., and she was found five hours later, almost two miles away from him, behind a tree. So you can just imagine what could have happened. Uh, she was found by a member of the Boyd family, along with their friend who had joined the search party because, like I said, they were last seen together. They just found poor Paul deceased. So they're worried sick 
about Betty Jo, so they went for a search party, and they found her five hours later, two miles away from him. Uh, Her body was lying on its back, fully clothed, with the right hand in the pocket of the buttoned overcoat. Uh, She had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as in the first double murder, so it was a 32 caliber automatic Colt pistol. Paul's car was found about three miles away from Betty Jo's body and about 1.55 miles away from his own body. And it was parked outside of Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. So this was clearly not just for the vehicle. Like the keys were still found in it and it was abandoned. The authorities were not sure who was shot first. The examinations of the body indicated that they both had put up a struggle. So they didn't just take it. Like they both fought for their lives and unfortunately were unsuccessful. Paul's friend said he did not believe an argument had happened between the victims and that Paul had not had any enemies. So this was really like they didn't think anything as far as, you know, who could, you know, that's one of the first things they ask is, do they have any enemies or anyone that would want to do this to them? And his friend said, no, Paul was a good guy. He couldn't think of anybody that would want to do this to him or Betty Jo. And speaking of Betty Jo, the law enforcement was unable to locate her saxophone at the crime scene, but it was eventually discovered around six months later, still in its black leather case in underbrush near where Betty Jo's body had been found, but it was found on October 24th. It's just incredible that they didn't see that at first. And again, a reward exceeding $1,700 for information leading to the person or persons responsible in both the Griffin Moore and the Martin Booker murders. So this is an insane amount of money for the 1940s. I mean, you're looking at, if you're thinking about it in today's terms, it's roughly about $24,000 of cash reward for any information leading into who could have possibly committed these crimes. I mean, that is an insane amount of money for just a small tip of who could have possibly done this and help or families solve what happened to their loved ones. So of course, with this amount of money, there started to be rumors of, Who could have possibly done it? You know, neighbors started pointing fingers at each other. And on April 18th, the captain had to actually issue a statement that said that the murderer had not been caught and that the rumors circulating among the public were a horrendous burden on on the investigation and harmful to innocent people. So he basically said, look, stop pointing fingers if you don't know who actually did it. If you have information, come forward, let us know. But if you don't know who did it, don't say John Doe did it. Like, don't start rumors and, you know, cause a panic and turn on each other. Like, don't do that. You know, he encouraged people, if you have information, come forward. But if you don't, just stop with all the rumors because it's not helping the investigation. It wasn't helping the victims' families find their justice. It was just creating more chaos and honestly, probably more heartbreak for those victims' families because all they want to see is the person responsible brought to justice. Like that's the main thing that victims' families want to see is they want to see that justice. They want an end to their heartache because now they're just left wondering who did it but at this point police were still not sure 
the women of Mainz were packing up the kids, packing up their belongings while their husbands had to go off to work. And they were actually moving into a local hotel, Hotel Grimm, which is kind of an ironic and sad name for the reason that they were moving there. Like they were so scared for their lives that they were moving into this hotel because they figured, okay, look, if I'm in this hotel, I'm surrounded by security and safety. So they were moving into this hotel Uh, women and families who had never owned guns before in their lives started to buy guns. And then they were also starting to Rube Goldsberg-esque kind of security systems around their houses. And what that means is you think of bells or, you know, different things that kind of set off and let you know when there is an intruder on your property, whether that be pots or, you know, a trip line that triggered something to let you know that is what it is. Because again, this is the 1940s. They didn't have the ring alarm system or ADT or anything like that. They simply had what they had. So they would rig up pots and pans and, you know, some lines to hopefully trigger when somebody was intruding on their property. And that's what they did. They lived in fear for these months, not knowing who it is, not knowing who could be next. I mean, so far there have been couples that have been attacked, but you never know. So fear and panic spread like wildfire at this time which leads us into the fourth and final crimes that occurred during this time and that was on friday march 3rd sometime before 9 p.m so a farmer virgil starks who is aged 37 was in his modest ranch style house on a 500 acre farm off of highway 67 which is almost 10 miles northeast of texarkana he turned on his favorite radio show while his wife katie aged 36 gave him a heating pad for a sore back you know he he's had a rough day so he was just relaxing enjoying his radio show his wife being the caring loving wife brought him a heating pad and he just sat in his armchair in the sitting room just listening to his radio which was just off of the kitchen and the bedroom Uh, while katie was in her bedroom lying on the bed in her nightgown she heard something from the backyard and asked virgil to turn down the radio a seconds later while virgil was reading the may 3rd edition of the texarkana gazette two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window three feet away so not far at all katie did not hear these gunshots instead she heard what sounded like the breaking of glass so she thought virgil had dropped something and she went to go see what happened as she entered the doorway to the living room she saw virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair she saw blood and then ran to him and lifted his head you know just freaking out fearing for the worst and that's when she realized that he was shot and was unfortunately dead and so she ran to the phone to call the police so this of course was the 1940s they did not have cell phones they actually had the wall crank phones and so she ran to that phone and then she rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot twice in the face from the 
exact same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear, and the other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. So these are insane shots. I mean, this is, I don't even, I don't even know. Like, so this person loves being like people, shooting people in their faces. Uh, So she dropped to her knees and soon managed to get back up on her feet. After being shot twice, She got on her feet and she ran to get a pistol from the living room, but was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch and thought she was going to be killed. I mean, she just got shot twice and she can hear the killer trying to basically break in. So she stumbled towards her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. You know, like, I'm going to be killed, but I'm at least going to have the last word and, you know, give some clues as to what happened before he gets me. And meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps and into the side screened porch through the back screen door. She heard him coming through the kitchen window and when she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out of the front door, leaving behind a river of blood behind her because again, she got shot twice in the face. And so, you know, she's just leaving a blood trail and teeth throughout the house and across the street. And if it's not crazy enough, She was barefoot because, again, she was laying in bed, you know, just ready to go to sleep. So barefoot and still blood soaked from her own blood, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. And because no one was home at the time, she again ran 50 more yards to another neighbor's house where the neighbor answered her and all she could get out was Virgil's dead and then she herself collapsed. This neighbor shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor who sent to collect his car. So after he got his car, he took Katie to the hospital and while he was taking her to the hospital, she thanked him by giving him one of her teeth with a gold filling. She was semi-conscious slumping forward on the front seat i mean this lady is incredible with her willpower and strength i mean this is just it's heartbreaking but it's just amazing to see her strength and while she lost a huge amount of blood she showed no signs of going into shock and her heart rate was actually normal so that's what i'm saying this lady is incredible although you know it's it's heartbreaking and i'm not trying to make this sound like it's a good thing like this poor woman along with all these victims, went through a horrible, horrible thing. But the fact that she was not going to shock, her heart rate remained normal after seeing her husband killed, her herself being shot, it's just simply amazing that it did not end up so much worse for her. And with that being said, this is actually where I'm going to be stopping. I just wanted to real quickly go through the timeline, go through the events and the crimes that occurred and just give these victims their spotlights because like I said, there were a total of eight victims, five killed and three wounded. So Katie Starks 
along with Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry, were the only three that were able to survive, while Richard Griffin, Holly Moore, Betty Jo Booker, Paul Martin, and Mr. Virgil Starks all tragically lost their lives. I just want everyone to remember those names because, I mean, even the survivors along with those that have passed were some very, very strong people, and my heart goes out to them as well as their families and their future generations because they never got to know them. They never got to, you know, live life to the fullest. And it's just, it's so sad. And I'm I'm so, like, this one's really, it, it's always hard to cover murders, but especially multiple murders like this, and especially the ones so young. It, it's just, it, it really gets to me. And I'm, I don't like doing these, but I want those victims' voices to still be heard. They may not be here with us, but we can still honor them and remember them. And hopefully somebody who knows something is listening by chance and can help them and help them find that peace. But that is all for me today. Please stay tuned for part two because it's going to be a lot of who I think did it, some suspects that have came forward. And as I always say, if you're going to only do one thing, always remember to listen closely.